Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 4. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, Podcast Nation. Welcome to Dose of Leadership Podcast. I am Richard Ryerson. Before we start with the interview, I just want to remind everybody, go to doseofleadership.com and and join our leadership community. Sign up. I'll give you a free copy of my leadership guide. Also, spread the word about this podcast. We're going to try to build this community, especially in these early stages. Get the word out there. Pass it it on to Facebook, on to Twitter, LinkedIn. Let everybody know about the quality shows that we're bringing here at Dose of Leadership Podcast. So again, thanks for your support, and uh, here's the interview. I'm so thrilled to have on the Dose of Leadership today, Major General Perry M. Smith. He's a retired Air Force General. He's an internationally known speaker. You might be familiar with him. I've seen him on, first I got familiar with him on TV back in the first Gulf War in 1991, where he was uh, an analyst for CNN and uh, McNell Lair News and NBC News. And you can see him probably now on CBS TV and CBS Radio News. You can hear him. He's a... a retired Major General, he served 30 years in the U.S. Air Force, and he has numerous leadership experiences with that. He commanded an F-15 wing at Bitburg, Germany, where he provided leadership to over 4,000 personnel. He's a graduate of the Military Academy at West Point, and uh, he's an author, too, with over 300,000 copies in print. His most popular book, Rules and Tools, it's one of my favorite. It's a practical guide for leaders, and we got a new edition coming out in August. And so, uh, General Smith, I mean, I could, your bio is almost a radio show in itself. I just skimmed over the top. Tell me a little bit more about yourself and how you became passionate about leadership and where you're at today. Yes, fine. First of all, uh, I want to uh, point out this, that the, 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 the full title of the book is Rules and Tools for Leaders. And you said rules and tools. And, I'm and sorry. So that's important. The second thing is, I am no longer doing radio and television. I've faded away from that. I did it for about 12 years, first for CNN, then I quit CNN on a major ethical issue, then went to work for NBC, and then later CBS. But I don't do that anymore. I still do a lot of teaching and, and workshops, but no longer any of the media stuff. Very well. As far as my, as far as my background on leadership, of course, I came from a military family. Uh, I moved a lot as a child, uh, left the country when I was six months old. I was six years old on the way to Sunday school when the uh, Pearl Harbor attack took place. We were living in Honolulu at the time, so I got to watch the uh, attack on Pearl Harbor at, at age six, and I can still remember that. Wow. And, and then I was evacuated from Hawaii with my mother and my sister and my grandmother uh, and ended up in St. Cloud, Minnesota. We didn't have a home, but it was my uncle's home. My dad was still in Hawaii. And that was when I made my first public speech at, at age seven in the second grade because I was asked by my teacher to tell my Pearl Harbor story. Wow. And and so I've been making talks now for more than 70 years. And so it, it's something that's kind of part of part of me. And I was a shy little nothing kid, but I was required to do this in school a number of times. And so I enjoy it a lot. My interest in leadership really didn't really, didn't really begin until I got to West Point. I was not a good athlete in uh, high school. I didn't hold any uh, positions of leadership in my in my high school at all. But when I got to West Point and they focused so much on leadership uh, and I got a chance to lead both on the athletic field playing lacrosse and also 
in my cadet company. I got really, really interested in that. And then as I went into the Air Force and got leadership opportunities along the way, I just thought it was wonderful to have an opportunity to have people to work with, uh, particularly high, highly motivated uh, uh, patriotic people. I enjoyed that a great deal. And then decided when I left the military, uh, I decided I wanted to uh, not to work for some defense contractor, but wanted to basically write and teach. And so I ended up doing quite a bit of teaching and still do quite a bit. And then I wrote, uh, I wrote six books, some of which have done okay. Others have died a, uh, died a quiet death. But it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a fun opportunity. There's opportunities to do leadership here in Augusta, which is my now, my hometown. And, uh, I, I provide leadership in a number of nonprofit organizations and, uh, it's a great joy to do so. Wow, that's amazing! And that Pearl Harbor story—I didn't know anything about. What What are some of your um, most memorable or most distinctive memories of that day? Well, we were picked up every morning at on uh, every Sunday morning in an army truck, uh, a ton and a half ton truck with uh, benches in the back, would pick up kids who lived in Honolulu, didn't live on a post, but lived in on the economy in Honolulu, and they would take us to an army post, Fort Derusi, which is right next to Hickam. It's not real close to Pearl Harbor, but it's quite ho- uh, close to Hickam Air Base, and uh, they would take us there every morning early. There was no air conditioning, so everybody did everything early. They'd pick us up about 7.15. We were some of the first kids to be picked up, and they, they'd load the truck full of kids and then deliver us to the post. When we got there, the, the attack was underway, so they turned the truck around, and we had this wild ride back home as they were dropping the kids back to their homes. And they didn't tell the kids in the back what was going on, but we could look out the back of the truck and see a lot of smoke and a lot of airplanes flying around. So we knew there was something going on, and then we got home. My, my mom grabbed us and took us to the basement, and we spent uh, that full day uh, in the basement with the assumption that the Japanese would probably be invading and probably coming in by parachute. When that did not happen then, we uh, stayed in Hawaii for a couple of months and then were forced to leave because they wanted to get the dependents out for fear that the Japanese would in fact invade at some time. And two, they needed housing for all the GIs who were coming over to fight the war in the Pacific. So we were evacuated on a ship. And I remember this well. There were 2,000 of us on a ship that only was designed to hold 900. Oh, my. And so there, there were 14 of us in the cabin, so we had to sleep in shifts. And uh, we finally made it into in, home safely after zigzagging across the North Pacific, uh, avoiding the Japanese submarines. There were a few Japanese submarines there. We were afraid we might get sunk, and we were not. So we made it back. And then, of course, during the war, we moved around a lot uh, from base to base as my, as, as my dad got various assignments. And then right after the war, I lived in, in Italy and saw the uh, aftermath of World War II. So I had a very interesting childhood experience. To say uh, the least. That's amazing. Yes. That is a, a, that's just absolutely amazing. So, Rules and Tools for Leaders, coming out with a new edition in August. I got to tell you, it's, right. one of, it's one of my favorite books. And, and the reason why I like it, uh, you know, one of the things I'm big about and here at Dosa Leadership is practical common sense. And I, I got to tell you, that book is one of the most practical guides I know that's out there. It's full of straight talk. And I love the clarity that you have in there and the simplicity. And when I say simplicity, I don't mean that. That's a compliment because it's so difficult. I know when I try to write articles how difficult it is to write in a simplistic language. And I don't mean simplistic in a 
it's just easy to understand. So, um, thank you. We, uh, when I wrote that book, I was uh, the commandant of the National War College. When I arrived there as a commandant, as a major general, I said, I want to do some teaching. And they said, no, 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 commandants don't teach. Commandants sit in their office and supervise. And I said, no, no, <laughs> I want to teach. And so I thought, well, I'll teach a course on kind of high-level executive leadership to these lieutenant colonels and colonels and Navy captains who were, and State Department officers who were moving on to top positions. Because I found that a lot of people were really good at leading, you know, 100 people or 200 people. But when they gave them 1,000 or 5,000, they didn't know how to do it particularly well. And so uh, I looked around to find a good book on strategic leadership or executive leadership. And there were quite a few books out there, but they were either, one, very academic, or two, they were very focused on business leadership. And right. I was teaching people who were going to be uh, in the government, either in the military or in some government agency. So I decided, well, if there's not a good book out there, maybe I could write one. And I did, and I did it uh, and tested it with my classes that I had. I was teaching uh, students from the National War College, students from the Industrial College, which was right next door to the National War College in Washington, and, and quite a few international students, some of whom had really quite extensive leadership experience. And so I polished the book over a period of three years and then got it published. It was first called Taking Charge, and now it's called Rules and Tools for Leaders. It's the only book I've written that has been uh, successful, although my Pentagon book, uh, Assignment Pentagon, has done pretty well. The Rules and Tools for Leadership out of my six books is the only one that I think you could say was successful. Well, it's it's great, and I love even the first chapter, the 30 Fundamentals chapter, is could almost be a book among itself. Uh, there's so many nuggets in there, and can I highlight some of my favorites in there? And maybe you can tell me what some of yours are, but um, sure. maybe we can sure. talk about some of these. I love the part about squinting with your ears. Can you talk about that one? Yeah, I don't know where I got that expression, but I got that expression maybe 20 years ago. Uh, I think I was at a leadership conference, and some speaker got up and said, you got to squint with your ears. And I thought, oh, what a good idea, because it, it, so many people don't really listen. They, their minds wander off to sports or sex or something. Right. And uh, the, the listening skill is something that's really, really important to, uh, to polish. And ec extroverts like me have a particularly hard time uh, listening because we're thinking about what we're going to say next. And so you have to really focus. So when somebody comes into your office, you've got to turn off your computer and turn off your phone and go sit next to them, look them directly in the eye, take notes and make sure that you listen well and they understand that you're listening well. And, uh, and if you can polish that skill and use it throughout your life, it really has a huge payoff. I agree. I think it takes a lot of effort. I, mean, I know a lot of times in my leadership positions and sitting across from somebody, you know, I spend so much time thinking about what I'm going to say. Am I saying, is what I'm saying coming across well? And then you just totally miss what the person is saying. So you're right. It is a conscious effort. And I just love that phrase, squinting with your ears. Yeah, well, it, it, what extroverts do, and you may be an extrovert also, we, we tend to fake listen. We, we look like we're listening. They think you're listening, but your your mind is off somewhere else. Yeah, I am <laughs> def definitely think, guilty of that more. About, yep. You're, you're thinking about what you're going to say in response to what they say, and that's not the important thing. The important thing is listening to them. And also, we have a tendency to interrupt, and we become interruptaholics, and uh, and we don't let the person say his full spiel, We uh, and that is a, a, a bad thing also. So re listening is really not easy for no, some people. It's not. You have to work at it pretty hard. Yeah, yeah. great. 
A lot of times in uh, my presentations, I talk about, and I get this from the Marine Corps, but it's uh, taking care of your, I call it taking care of your folks. In your book, you say taking care of your people. Elaborate on that one. I love that one, too. Well, you know, uh, I, I love the Schwarzkopf quote, uh, which is, and I just wrote an article on Norman Schwarzkopf, who I knew at West Point. Uh, he, he had two, two quotes. One was, get the troops out of the hot sun. <laughs> and two, be the last person in the chow line. Yep. And, and I just like that a lot because the, being the last person at Chow Line basically says, in everything you do, put your troops first and put your, yourself last yep. in everything you do. And if you have that kind of attitude toward life and you really look out for people, uh, they will appreciate that. You'll get more out of them because they will tend to like you, respect you, in some cases even love you. And uh, and, 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 and that attitude really uh, really pays off. The Marine Corps does that particularly well, I think. Yep. Uh, the, some of the other services, like the Air Force, don't do it particularly well. They're so focused on either technology or, or you know, single-seat fighter guys who think they're the, the world's best everything kind right. of people. Uh, but it, it is a, it's, a power, it's a powerful thing. And I, as I work with civilian organizations, uh, I often find that the leader at the top really doesn't, he thinks about the bottom line, he thinks about the numbers, he thinks about the profit numbers, but he doesn't think about his people as much as he might. He doesn't say thank you very often. Uh, and those are the kinds of things that are so terribly important. You know, and it's so simple and so easy to understand, but you're right, it's so often missed. You know, you're right about the Marine Corps. I remember that was one of the first things I remember, even from the first week of officer candidate school. You know, you know officers eat last. If Private Jones forgets his sleeping bag out in the field, you go without, not him. It's it's so simple, and you're right. Um, you talked about you know I'm, as a pilot too, as a military pilot, and and dealing with the egos and controlling the egos. Talk about that. You got a, a part in that first chapter too called controlling ambitions and egos. Can you elaborate on that one? Yeah, that one of the problems that people have, particularly when they get into leadership positions, is that. They, they get a lot of praise. A lot of people, you know, want to pat them on the back and tell them how wonderful they are because they, they uh, you know, want to get promoted or they want to get along well with the boss and all that business. And after a while, you have a tendency to begin to think that you're kind of special. You know, people are thanking you all the time, and it can kind of get to you. And so you need to re- re- remind yourself that, you know, you put your pants on one, one foot, one leg at a time, uh, and that, uh, you, you know, you're... you're uh, uh, You've got a lot of faults along the way. Don't get too carried away with uh, with the praise. Yeah, I I think there there are certain places where you have a tendency to to uh, to have egos become a problem. Uh, and let's talk first about pilots. You go off and you learn how to fly airplanes and you fly airplanes solo and you're responsible for getting in the air and getting down and all that kind of stuff. And you begin to think, well, I can do this, but a lot of people can't. And I can do this really well and a lot of people can't do it well. And I can fly formation and do all these kinds of things. And after a while, you hang around with people who are very bright and very skilled and have good hand-eye coordination. And they begin to think that they're kind of a special group. And they become kind of elitist, and they look down at the maintainers, and they look down at the engineers, and they look down at the supply guys, they look down at about everybody. And it kind of, it, it's self-reinforcing. And so what you have to do if you're in that category, and that happens with athletes, 
in, on, on teams. It happens uh, in, in certain industries where people are doing particularly well and all that, whether it be Apple, computer, or whatever. And you've got to be really careful to not allow the fact that you have succeeded well and you're doing well and you're pretty smart and you hang around with smart people. Uh, you got to be careful that that doesn't make you a person who no, no longer can stay in touch with the uh, with with regular folks and you become uh, a kind of an elitist and you've got to work on that hard. And the best way to fight that more than any other way, I think, is to find an anchor or two, somebody who's close to you, whether it's your spouse or your assistant or, or one of your buddies who constantly brings you back down and reminds you that you're just an ordinary guy, just happens to be very fortunate to be in a situation where you're able to do some things that other people can't do. And you have to fight that constantly and uh, and watch for it. And if you use the term I a lot, and uh, I'm, I'm guilty of this often, when I write something, I oftentimes say, I think this or I, I think you ought to do that. And if you do writing, it's best not to use the first person. In fact, it's best not to use the first person in your speeches also, except maybe when you're doing self-deprecating humor where you're making fun of yourself. Right. But uh, those are the kinds of things that you can work on and, and watch out for. Uh, but it's a constant problem uh, with anybody anybody in a, who is successful, and particularly if there's a, a series of successes. I love that. Great advice. You know, coming from... I've been in the civilian sector about 12 years now. This is my 12th year. And one thing that's really st stuck out, and in the Marine Corps, they always talked about the 75% solution. They were always talking about make a decision, keep the ball rolling. It's better to make a good decision now than a perfect decision too late. One of your uh, fundamentals is being decisive. Can you elaborate on that one? Yeah, the best insight I got on that was was a guy who was running the uh, shuttle program for NASA before we lost our first shuttle, a guy named Jim Abramson. And, right. and I, uh, I had him speak at the National War College as one of the uh, distinguished speakers. And he got up and said, I, uh, I have my 60% decision rule, and went on and talked about that a little bit. And somebody said, well, what does that mean? He says, well, I have, when I get about 60% of the information that I need, uh, then I go ahead and make the decision. I can't wait until I have 80% or 90% or 100%. I'll be, I'll be months later, years later, making that decision. And I have to realize and understand that I deal with a certain amount of uncertainty. Uh, and that's the way it is. And so uh, I, I kind of like that. You've got to be decisive. You've got to be willing to make a decision. You've got to get the problem solved. And uh, the, the people who are willing to do that take some risks in doing that are ones who are going to get a whole lot more done the, the perfectionists who wait and wait and wait until they have uh, uh, detailed information, and next thing you know, their competitor has beaten them, or, or or they lost a lot of money because they should have made the decision this year, and next year was more expensive. Uh, there are a lot of costs in delaying decisions, and uh, it's best to make decisions quickly, uh, not necessarily in the next five seconds. Uh, sometimes you need to do some research and wait a week or two, but you should not postpone decisions. Well, and. I think it's a fallacy to believe that th that you'll have all the information. I always say that too. You're never going to have all the information ever, and it's never going to be perfect. So you might as well. And 60% is even better, but you know, definitely the 75% solution. If you got all the, that information, use the other 25%. Use your brain, your decision, and your guts. The ability to, to take that risk because risk taking, as you put in your book, is essential and a healthy aspect of decision making. That's right. Now there are some people, though. Uh, there are uh, there are basically perfectionists.
business, and I deal with them quite often, where say, well, let's decide on this. Oh, well, no, we've got to get a little more information. And they, they really are looking for the perfect uh, amount of information, and they, they just can't get, get off that. And they, they make very poor leaders because they postpone and postpone, and people get very frustrated when they know a decision needs to be made and uh, the boss is not willing to make it. Yeah. What about... Um I love this one too. Welcome, welcoming criticism and fighting paranoia. Yeah, uh, one of the things I think uh, that I have found helpful to me is when I sit down with people, particularly on one-on-one situations, I ask them questions like, you know, what are we doing wrong? Uh, how am I wasting your time? Uh, let me know what I, uh, where I'm making mistakes and so forth. And the better uh, associates that I work with will say, well, sir, you know, you've got us going, doing this, and it's kind of a waste of time. Or you say your first priority is X, but you spend much, much of your time on your priority four, and we're confused. And uh, they will give you the kind of feedback that you really need, and welcoming criticism is important, even though some of the criticism you're going to get is, is not uh, helpful, and it's not right, and it's and it's angry and, and, and wrong, you still have to be willing to accept it because even buried in unhappy and, and, and incorrect criticism, there may be an idea or two that, that can be helpful to you. You've got to fight paranoia in the sense that uh, uh, you, anybody who thinks, that anybody who's a Richard Nixon who creates an enemies list out there, who feels people are, are really going after them and trying to destroy them or trying to undermine their, their leadership and all that stuff. you got to be really careful with that. Most people are, are, are maybe not like you or angry at you, but they're doing it largely because they're stupid or, or, or uh, they're ignorant or, uh, or they're misguided or they themselves have psychological problems, and you're just going to have to write them off. Like Colin Powell's great quote about racism, he says, the, the person who's a racist, that's their problem. That's not my problem. I, I, I'm not going to worry about those folks because right. they have a problem. I don't have a problem right. at all, and and that is the, that's the kind of attitude you need to have. Well, I flying multi-crew aircraft. I used to say this, especially flying with new people I'd never flown with before. When I'd give my briefing before takeoff, I'd always say, "Hey, look, it's not your right to challenge me; it's your obligation." And I carry that over into the business world too. And I think it's so imperative. It's like, look, you have an obligation here to not let me land with the gear up. I don't care if you think I'm being angry, how stupid, how smart, how you know aloof you think I am. You are obligated to challenge me and respectfully challenge, of course. But I mean, if you keep, create that environment, you'll. I mean, it's difficult enough to get those nuggets out of the, the people because they're either afraid, but you've got to work towards creating that environment. So I agree with well, you. Well, that's right, and, that, and that's a very, very important point. And the, the accident that happened where the, where the Russians shot down the Korean airplane right. a number of years ago is a good example where the where – the, uh, with a, uh, a co-pilot knew that they were off course and knew they were getting in Soviet airspace, but because of there's such an authoritarian uh, atmosphere in the in the cockpit, he was unwilling to uh, he was unwilling to criticize it and uh, allow the airplane to get uh, get shot down. And there, uh, that's really really important to uh, to emphasize with people the obligation to criticize is absolutely. Uh, I love the way you phrase that. Yep. Another thing I like too, and I haven't heard, I haven't seen a lot of people talk about this, and you know, again, I always go back to the Marine Corps, and maybe people get sick of me bringing it up. I'm not saying businesses should be run like the Marine Corps, but certain aspects of it, like the maintaining a sense of outrage. I think, um, talk to me about that. 
Yeah, I, I think uh, when, when something's going wrong in the organization, you have a dishonest boss or you're about ready to make a really bad decision, uh, you should get mad. You should get it should be controlled, but it should be an outrage. And right. My best example is uh, the CNN experience when I had to quit CNN. When they uh, produced a, uh, a special that was so wrong and so dishonest and so uh, uh, abhorrent that I that I had to do something. I just couldn't. I just couldn't just sit there and say, "Well, everybody makes mistakes. CNN made a mistake. I'm just going to have to roll with the punches." I I had a sense of outrage, and I felt I had to not only be mad about it, but I had to do something about it. So it's, a, it's not only a sense of outrage, it's taking that outrage and turning it into a, into a decision process so you, so you fix the problem, you, you, you solve the ethical problem or whatever it might be. And so it's a combination of a sense of outrage when somebody is doing something really wrong or something in the organization is just fouled up terribly that you have an obligation to be mad, but you also have an obligation to do something about it. I love that. One thing I like to do on these talking these interviews is is talk about failures. I've certainly had my share of leadership failures in the past. What about you? What are some that stick out in your mind, and, and what did you learn from them? Yeah, I had I've had six major failures in my life, and uh, I, when I do the did the interview with Katie Couric on the Today Show, I mentioned that I had five. I've now had six, but uh, uh, there each one of them. Uh, I learned a lesson. I learned a lesson from one was when I got fired uh, from a fairly significant job in the Pentagon. I learned a lot about that. I learned how not to get fired. Uh, the guy that fired me uh, handed the responsibility off to the personnel system, and then when I asked him about it, he lied to me about why uh, why I was leaving. And I learned that if you're going to fire somebody and it works, he or she works directly for you. You've got to do it yourself. And, uh, and you've got to be honest about it. And so that, that was a lesson I learned from being fired. Uh, then when I lost all the airplanes, uh, I was uh, wing commander of an F-15 unit in Europe, the brand new F-15, the wonderful F-15. We lost five airplanes that crashed in a period of about nine months. And uh, wow. that, was mass- that was massive failure. Man. And uh, uh, we had a major engine problem, uh, electronic uh, uh, control, the engine control problem, and both engines would quit, and the guys had to jump out. And so, uh, because you couldn't get a, we didn't have a way to get it restarted in the air. They later fixed that, but uh, we lost five airplanes. And uh, after uh, the fifth airplane crashed, uh, the, the Air Force a couple of weeks later promoted me from colonel to brigadier general. Oh, I mean, to goodness. the amazement, to the amazement of the Western world. I mean, how can you possibly uh, promote this clutch who can't even keep his airplanes in the air? And uh, I asked the, uh, the four-star general who was responsible for getting me on the promotion list, who was my boss over there in Europe, so how did I get promoted? He said, well, that's easy, Perry. You handle failure well, he said. You handle failure well. I said, you're going to have to explain that to me. And he said, well, you know, don't you understand? He said, all my wing commanders are failing. You failed with airplanes. Other people failed because they couldn't pass the NATO inspections. Others had a big drug. Another one had a big drug uh, ring on his base he hadn't solved. Another had a major racial issue on his base he hadn't solved. He says, all my wing commanders were failing in one dimension or the other. And he says, I learned a lot more from by watching people and how they handle failure than how they handle success. And he says, I thought you handled the airplane crashes uh, well, about as well as you could. And so I decided you ought to be on a promotion list. Well, I learned a lot from that. And that is we learn a lot more from our failures than we do from our successes. 
and people who do handle failure well are like, likely to handle success well. Yeah. And that's really kind of the test of leadership, not how you handle success. I mean, that's fairly easy. Yep. It's how you handle setbacks and failure. So, and I had a number of others, but those were the two most uh, dramatic, I think. Have you seen that uh, documentary that came out? They won an Academy Award last a year ago, but undefeated about that coach in Manassas, Tennessee, that, that volunteered for that underprivileged school in Manassas, Tennessee. No, I did not see that. I, I highly recommend that you watch that. It's an amazing, moving documentary. But that's one thing that he emphasized throughout and throughout is its character is not about how you react when you win. It's about what you do when you face a loss, particularly a painful one. And um, anyway, it's it's it highlight that the theme of that movie is just that point that you were talking about. So I highly recommend anybody to watch that. It's a very moving moving piece. What, what's it called again? It's called Undefeated, and Undefeated. it just it just came. You can get it at Walmart now. It just came out in the stores, and it's okay. very very good. I highly recommend it. Okay, I'll certainly do that. Who are your heroes? I mean, I just can't imagine. I mean, you, you know, I was just amazed. That's one thing I learned in this is, is I keep thinking about that eyewitness to the Pearl Harbor and then being in Europe in World War II. And you have such a a huge career and so many experiences. Who are your heroes? Who are your leadership heroes? Well, I, ne- I never really had a, a mentor like a lot of people have. In fact, I kind of avoided it when I was going uh, in the military because I saw people kind of hooking themselves to some general right. in hopes that that general would carry them to success. And I, I didn't. I didn't want that. I wanted to. I wanted to kind of make it on my own. So, I had an opportunity to be a, an aide a couple of times to general officers, and I and I and I turned it down. I just didn't want to want to do that. I wanted to be a line officer all the way through the process. So I can't point to you know Colonel so and so or General so and so who was a mentor. My dad, of course, was very important in my life, particularly emphasizing. Uh, the ethical side of life. Uh, he was very important, and uh, and then I, I got my role models really from uh, from literature. From, uh, George Marshall was my lo- role model. When I was in graduate school, I I did a paper on all the gen- all the senior generals and admirals uh, in the in World War II, and what were you know what was their theories of international relations? I was getting a PhD in international relations. What were the theories of international relations? How did they define an enemy? How did they plan for the future? What were their leadership styles and all that? And after reading many many biographies and autobiographies on these various people, uh, George Marshall just came out as the as the person of, of, of greatest character, and, and, and so he became my role model. And whenever I would do anything, I would ask myself, uh, what would George Marshall have done in, in this situation, you know, and, and try to follow his guide. And then, of course, I found some negative role models, and that was, uh, I had one boss at the Pentagon who was just terrible. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't dishonest. He was just so super am- ambitious that uh, it, it was, he was hard to deal with. And uh, so I learned from him, you know, some yeah, what negative not to lessons. Do. Yeah, I think sometimes. Yeah, I think sometimes you yeah. learn a lot more from those negative leaders you come across. Absolutely, I can, I can think of a handful of that that are just like, wow, I do not want to do what that guy's doing. But I, I was very fortunate because I, I really only ran into to one person uh, that was really bad, and uh, uh, and so, but he was a helpful role model for me right. in a negative sense. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, I was thinking back to that, going back to that Pearl Harbor. I know when last one thing I always liked when I went into Hickam is, and I don't know if you've been there or if you've still seen, if you've gone in there, but they still have the, the original buildings. They still have a lot of those, uh, the bullet holes from the attack still sitting in the building right there in, on Hickam Air Force Base. 
Oh, yeah, I've seen him, sure. Well, guys, I could sit here and talk to you for hours and hours, and, and I would love to have you back on at a later date. Um, but we're approaching our 30-minute 30, 30 mark, yeah. but, but where else? Where can we find you? Where can people get in touch with you? I know that you do consulting, you do speaking. Where can people get in touch with you? Yeah, the best way, of course, is just to my uh, email address, and, and I have a lot of interaction with folks in the email address. I help people uh, in, in areas, help them find jobs, help them get into the Air Force Academy or whatever it might be. Uh, or if they're looking for me as a speaker or workshop leader, they can come to me and uh, we can work out the arrangements. I don't do consulting. Uh, I, I want to make that point Okay, clear. sorry about that. Yeah. That's okay. It, it, a, a consultant is somebody who takes a look at a company, spends a, quite a bit of time in the company, does a lot of research in the company, looks at the looks at the environment and the competitors and all that, and sits down with the CEO and the top leadership and say, "Okay, these are the steps we think I think you need to do." I don't do that. I I just don't spend. I don't take the time to do that. I don't enjoy particularly doing that. It takes me away from home to do that kind of stuff. So sure. what I do basically is just do leadership workshops or strategic planning workshops or ethics workshops, uh, which will run anywhere from an hour to two hours to half a day, and uh, and then uh, and then usually I give some feedback after the workshop because I do quizzes with people. Uh, ask them certain questions, and I go back to them. For instance, uh, one of the things I like to do is I circulate uh, five by seven cards, and I ask them uh, anonymously. I ask them not to put their name down, but I ask them anonymously to answer a number of questions. And one of the questions I ask is, uh, "What books have you read lately?" <laughs> uh-huh. And uh, and I did I did one recently with a, a bunch of uh, folks here in the, the city government of Augusta who were in the IT business, so they were. They're pretty technical people, pretty well-educated people, and I asked them the question. And uh, more than 50% of the group that I talked to had read, had read zero books in the last year. Oh, my. And, and, of course, I fed that back to them, saying, you know, you're going brain dead. You're not bringing much intellectual capital to the equation. The next time you get interviewed for a job and, and the person who wants you to come to work for them asks the question, what books have you read lately? If you answer zero, the chances are you won't get hired. I try to emphasize the point that we all have to stay intellectually aware. And my basic rule is uh, read one good book a month or more. And if you haven't read a book in a year, it's time to get started. You can't be, if you're only as smart as your television set, uh, set in your computer and the, and the newspaper, you're not smart enough to really make a major contribution to the organization. So, and I ask other questions about, you know, what, what uh, if, if you have a, a good friend or a brother or somebody who's about ready to get a leadership job and never had a leadership job before, what would you give them as a present? Uh, and, and it's interesting answers that I get from various people. And of course, I emphasize I emphasize what you ought to do. You ought to you ought to give them a couple of good books on leadership is what you ought to, do. and and you know not give them a, a BlackBerry or or whatever or 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 send them to a really good leadership conference would be another uh, 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 would be another suggestion. So so I do give them some feedback after the sessions are over, but I don't uh, I don't do consulting. Well, I appreciate your passion for leadership. It's been so fun talking to you. Like again, I got to have you back because there's so many other things I want to talk to you about. So we'll we'll schedule another date later to, to to continue this conversation. But I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule, and thanks for the uh, t- the technology snafu we had in the middle there. And so I appreciate your patience. Uh, so thanks again, General Smith. I appreciate it. 
Okay, now, uh, I, wa I do want to send you some stuff, and I've been really busy, and I haven't had a chance to do it. I, I want to send you a, the video on, on, on my wife's father. Uh, and you, I think, are you familiar with that story? No, I'm not. Jimmy? Uh -uh. Well, as a Marine, you'll be interested in this. Uh, and I have your address uh, somewhere on my computer, but I might ask you to give it to me again here. Oh, no, just send it to me okay. by email again. Yep. But it, uh, it's a Jimmy Dias story, D-Y-E-S-S. Absolutely. That would be awesome. He was, he was a Marine, and they uh, have named a, a parkway in his honor here in, uh, in the Augusta area, and we do a Jimmy Dias symposium every year uh, to honor uh, distinguished Americans. And so we, we're keeping him kind of in the, uh, in the forefront because he's a wonderful role model for people who, who want to serve their country and, want to, uh, and, and are willing to, uh, uh, to serve Well, absolutely. I, I'd, I'd love to get that. And, and again, when I'll, that sounds very compelling and intriguing. I'd love to promote that in any way that I could and help you out with that. That okay, sounds very other, fascinating. One, yeah, one other thing I wanted to mention is uh, there are a bunch of leadership conference, uh, around the country, conferences around the country, some of which I've been to, but there's one that's particularly good. And uh, it's very inexpensive because it's a nonprofit. Uh, most of the speakers uh, either waive their honorarium or reduce their honorarium because they enjoy the audience so much. And it's called uh, uh, the the Blue Ridge Conference on Leadership, and uh, I'll send you some stuff on that. Also, it's held in a at a perfect location at the perfect time. It's held in mid October in Black Mountain, North Carolina, right outside of Asheville, when all the trees are turning, and it's just gorgeous. It runs about three days. It only costs, I think, $600, and that counts everything, including wow. food and lodging and everything. That is cheap. And, uh, and it's uh, designed uh, mostly for first-level supervisors. It's not a, it's not a course for uh, uh, senior-level executives, but I have encouraged people around the country to come. Uh, and uh, the universal, universally, I've gotten really good feedback on that. So I'm gonna, I'll send you a brochure on that also. Yeah, great. That may be something we can promote on the website and the podcast, too, especially as we get closer. In, um... Yeah, that would be good because uh, it, it, it's not as well known as it should be. Uh, there are usually around 400 people that attend. They could easily handle about 600. And uh, it would be it would be good if we could get more people to come to this thing. It's it, it's supported by Auburn University, and uh, the university picks up some of the uh, uh, some of the expenses uh, for the thing. And as a result, they can keep the uh, the fee at a very low level. Awesome. Good. Well, guys, thanks so much, General Smith. I appreciate you taking the time today, and um, and uh, we'll okay. uh, we'll do this again. That's you. Okay. Bye. Bye. -bye. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. 
Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.